Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. If you're looking for an easy way to keep advancing your career, your skills, and your opportunities, consider becoming an Adweek Pro member. As an Adweek Pro member, you'll get unlimited access to Adweek content. You'll also be invited to member-only events, classes, and networking opportunities. Your employer might even cover the cost of your membership. Visit adweek.com slash subscribe to learn about our current special rate for new Adweek Pro members. That's adweek.com slash subscribe. You're listening to, yeah, that's probably an ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. And I'm Ko Im. I'm the community editor at Adweek. And we are nearing the end of June um, in this very, very strange year. And we are joined today uh, by retail reporter Richard Collings and our senior reporter Lisa Lacey to talk about everything that's really happened so far this year, which has been a lot. Right, guys? Welcome to the podcast. It has been, for sure. Yeah, the, uh, you know, we've, it's like every week, I remember there have been times in the history of this podcast where, you know, the marketing world's kind of quiet and we're like, ah, what should we talk about this week? And instead the last few months have just been like, what fresh hell shall we go over (laughs) this, this week? And this week it's retail's turn. (laughs) The, um, so, so we're going to be talking through, uh, uh, the impact of, you know, a lot of bankruptcies, probably going to talk quite a bit of bankruptcies. The, um, we, we call it the bankruptcy tracker. I don't think the official name of our thing is the bankruptcy tracker, right, Richard? It's the more politically correct retail tracker. <laughs> it, it could be anything. There could be good news in there. <laughs> Mostly <laughs> bad. I'll, yes, but potentially good, but probably not. <laughs> Um, but you know, just the fact that we have to have a tracker, like one place to keep tabs on all these, uh, on all these bankruptcies, uh, and just to set the, let, well, let's actually, um, let's do a little level setting here because even, even I, after years of covering this kind of stuff, I get confused about this. Uh, Richard or Lisa, um, maybe Richard, since I know you're covering these more day to day, what is the difference between bankruptcy and going out of business when we talk about these retail companies? Certainly. So, so, so far this year, we've seen a lot of bankruptcies. We've also seen a few out of court restructurings. Uh, we've also seen defaults out of court. Um, so, but we've also seen liquidations and those are certainly tied to bankruptcy where you just see a complete liquidation of the store. And a good example of that would be Pier 1 Imports. Uh, and in those situations, the the stores are shuttered, all the inventory, all of the 
you know, the, the shelving and everything is just sold um, and, and the IP is sold to somebody. And, but you might see that brand, however, you know, a caveat there is someone might come in and buy the Pier 1 Imports IP, intellectual property, the brand name, and maybe it finds another life online as an e-commerce uh, outlet or or maybe someone you know in a few years decides to open some pier one import stores i know people uh, in the past have have threatened to revive some of these historically defunct retailers what are there any good success stories in that sense of of brands that i'm thinking about the ones that have liquidated or at least locally i don't know if it's been nationwide but uh you know payless kind of vanished um, all the ones around me just literally were gone, like in, in you know, in 48 hours or whatever. Uh, uh, Toys R Us, I feel like they kind of um, got emptied out. Are there any that have come back successfully or at least somewhat seem to have promise as uh, reborn brand names? There are not a lot of success stories uh when it comes to that sort of thing. I know they were planning early this year, Payless was talking about making a comeback. COVID clearly... Uh, interrupted any of those kinds of plans. Uh, you know, Toys R Us um, also uh, is remain to be seen. I know there were revival plans around that particular uh, banner. So, so it's it's very it's very very tough. Um, I there have been other examples in the past where there was a lot of chatter around trying to bring some of these these brands back. And we've certainly seen uh, some of them come back online. But in terms of physical stores, that is a definitely a, a bigger a bigger hill to climb. Yeah, especially, you know, um, we can compare the likes of GNC and Chuck E. Cheese or 24-Hour Fitness. Um, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you guess, I guess you could have online classes for 24-Hour Fitness and you know, e-commerce for GNC, but someone like Chuck E. Cheese, are you saying that David can't open his own franchise potentially in the future? <laughs> <laughs> my dreams, my retirement plans all up in smoke. Well, well, one of the good, one of the, one of some good news for you guys, you know, a lot of these retailers will, may go into bankruptcy. Certainly CEC declared bankruptcy, GNC did as well. Um, some of these will will survive. They will emerge from bankruptcy. They will have stores. They will be much smaller in size than they were before. Uh, but but I think it's reasonable to expect that that we will definitely see some of these live life after bankruptcy. So just because you know we're seeing a lot of uh, retailers file for bank bankruptcy doesn't mean all of them are going to go away, or even or even most of them. Um, most, in fact, may indeed. Reemerge in a, in an, in another smaller uh, form. Co, have there been any of these bankruptcies or closures that have personally like hurt your soul? Like any chains that you actually were really connected to? <laughs> uh, my parents actually go to Chuck E. Cheese on Guam, um, but uh, I don't know. I think I'm just uh, noticing that anything can happen to anyone. Um, but you you have one, right? That that's affecting your kids too yeah well it's like my whole family is kind of obsessed with tuesday morning uh for those who have not been to a tuesday morning it, it's almost like a joke we i don't even it, it, do you ever like like something ironically and then like love it, it pretend to love it then at some point start find yourself like earnestly loving it and just wondering like how how did i how did i, did I actually start liking that i feel like that's what happened with tuesday morning i'm not really 
I'm not really sure what the fancy like retail name for this kind of business is, a wholesaler or reseller or whatever, but they kind of like buy, I feel like they buy up those big, big lots of, uh, of unsold inventory from other stores and they sell it to you on the cheap, but it's just like this bizarre collection of kitchen stuff and luggage and I don't, I don't know, pillows it's like really random stuff. Uh, Lisa, is there is there a name there? What's that called? Um, off what? price. <laughs> there you go. There you what, go. What is it? We we call it off price. Um, some do it really really well, like uh, TJ Maxx, um, and some do it really terribly, like Tuesday morning. So, uh, <laughs> yes, harsh, harsh, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's um, but okay. So tell us about Tuesday morning, like the, uh, that one. Honestly, I I thought felt kind of recession proof. Like these businesses that sell you pretty good stuff on the cheap. Um, why do what do we know about those kinds of shops and and how they're doing? I don't know how much you know about specifically about Tuesday morning, but what do we know about the about why those aren't doing so well? Certainly, you know, I'm not as familiar either with with the specifics around Tuesday morning. I know TJ Maxx. Part of its success is it has such strong relationships with so many brands and because of its size and its scale, you know, it has a real advantage over over the other players in that space. Another one uh, that declared bankruptcy was Stage Stores uh, with uh, Gordman's Off Price, which is another another banner, also declared bankruptcy. So some of these guys have really, really struggled. And and I have to say part of that is is they just don't have the kind of relationships and they're regional in nature as well. Um, and it's 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 just an incredibly, incredibly competitive and competitive space. Yeah, let's talk about the um, numbers so far this year. I mean, is there a sign for hope for retail? Um, I'm sure the numbers are not at the pre-pandemic levels, but um, are are we seeing some positives? We are seeing consumers start to come back into stores, and and sales are rebounding at least month over month. We're we're not to where we were a year ago. Uh, you know, clearly, unsurprisingly, uh, we still have a lot of ground to make up. Apparel is probably the worst hit of any of the sub-segments within retail. Um, and I think, you know, year over year, uh, last month, a year ago, sales were something like $22 billion, if I remember correctly. And and so, and in the last month, and just this recent last month, they were $8 billion. So it goes to show you, and that, and that was up over that eight billion was up over the month prior to that, which was two point something billion. So, so there was a huge month over month increase for apparel, um, but year over year, you know, apparel has is still only a third of of what it was uh, prior to the pandemic. So, so. But some sectors have done incredibly well, right? Like Home Depot, uh, Lowe's, the home improvement category is actually up year over year, which is pretty pretty stunning. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess grocery has done pretty well. Grocery has done well. Lisa can tell you, you know, about about the online and the grocery, the grocery space has definitely been very hot. Yeah, and Amazon, Lisa is trying to sweep in for some of those retail um, openings, so to speak, right? 
Right, yeah, I, I did have a, a piece. I mean, it's a little speculative maybe, but just kind of looking at all of this retail space that's going to be opening up here. And, you know, Amazon is, is in a unique position in that it, it has the, the coffers they can dip into uh, and potentially uh, kind of build out its physical footprint if, if that was something that it was going to do. Um, one of the more interesting comments from that story, I thought, came from a, a real estate guy. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but um, talking about how he could see, well, the, the, the restaurant industry in particular, he thought was going to be pretty hard hit. Uh, but then in these empty restaurant spaces, uh, like in the city of New York, for example, uh, it's, it's the perfect spot for Amazon Go. And so um, you recall a couple of years ago, Amazon had this very ambitious expansion uh, plan for Amazon Go, uh, something like, I, I forget, it was like two or 3,000 stores within, by 2021, something like that. Um, they're at like 25 now. Um, but this could theoretically um, be kind of the moment where they can just snap up a whole bunch of real estate and get a bunch of Amazon Go's out there. And then it's kind of like Starbucks where there's like one on every other corner. You go in, it's a convenience store, you pick up a sandwich or a drink or whatever and, and walk out. So um, it'll be interesting to see if, if that actually comes to pass. Is there, are, do they sell clothes at Amazon Go at all? No, um, but it's hard because clothes are kind of flimsy, so it's hard to do, like, the technology can't, um, like, you can't track that. Like, they don't sell, um, you have to buy bottled coffee. They can't sell you coffee, like, in a cup because right. that, you can't track that. Um, maybe somewhere down the road. I certainly wouldn't put it past them, but um, they're not, not quite there yet. Yeah, I, I just bring that up because I know you've also been writing um, a lot about um, Amazon's upcoming sale. What can you tell us about that? What started, it's it's going on right now. Um, so it's sort of, uh, I mean, Prime Day is, is typically in July. So sort of as a... Um, what, what am I trying to say? Like, like to appease customers who uh, may have to wait until later in the year for those Prime Day deals, they're um, they're offering up this big style sale. And uh, you know, I haven't seen any numbers yet about how it's doing, but I do think it's interesting that they're focusing on fashion because I feel like um, fashion, in a number of ways, is like this nut that Amazon so desperately wants to crack, but it, it hasn't quite gotten there yet. Like Amazon wants to be the go-to site for everything for everyone. Um, but when it comes to clothes, they're still not quite there. Um, you know, and I think a big part of that is, um, you know, issues with counterfeits and, and, and things like that. And um, it's also just the way the algorithm was built for books. You know, it's not um, the signals of a book's popularity are not the same as the signals for clothing's popularity. So they've really made an effort over the past couple of years to kind of present themselves to the world as this fashion destination. Um, I don't know if you remember that Echo Look device from a couple of years ago. It was like an Echo that was supposed to live in your closet and not a camera and would take pictures of you and I think give back. Um, I'm sorry, that is like peak Silicon Valley. Like, um, it's well, clueless. It's clueless. Your, your, reaction, Silicon Valley. your reaction is perfect because they just pulled the plug on that because uh, it seems uh, the consumers were a little uncomfortable <laughs> having this Alexa in their closets taking pictures of their, their bodies. Um, <laughs> 
but it so anyway i just i think that again like this moment with the big style sale they have their prime wardrobe service um where you can order clothes and shoes and what have you and it's sent to your house you get a shipping label for the stuff that you don't want to keep you try it on in the comfort of your home whatever you don't want you put back in the box put the shipping label back on and, and send it back to them so they're, they're trying very very hard to be this fashion destination um that may also be part of the reason why they're teaming up with Valentino on another uh, lawsuit against a seller for for counterfeits. Um, but I still think I still my gut still says that they're they're not quite there yet. Yeah, I remember when they tried to hire all these um, fashion editors from the Glossies to to help try to boost the site a couple of years ago, and I guess it you know still that nut to crack. Yeah, I was. I think it's funny. Like when I. I go on people.com occasionally don't judge me but like there are always those um articles sort of interspersed about like you know this sundress on amazon has four thousand five star reviews like you know read all about it here kind of a thing so there are all sorts of stories there um pushing these um you know clothes and shoes and and purses and and that kind of a thing and I, i do wonder how many uh how many sales i've derived uh from from that effort in particular can I ask, this is kind of a question for everybody, um, how how your shopping has changed? I know we're still kind of in the thick of the quarantine. I, I live uh, outside of New York, uh, quite a bit outside of New York. I live in Alabama. Um, and we we are... Um, uh, in a bad in a bad place, we're banned from New York. I don't know if y'all heard about this that uh, Al- Al- Alabamians are not allowed into New York or New Jersey without a two week quarantine. Um, but it's because we've never really implemented any firm. You know, we have uh, Republican leaders uh, like a lot of states. Uh, our leadership did not really see any need for for closing down businesses or putting in any mandates. The only real, uh, not to get political, this just a fact. Uh, I mean, this just reality is that. Um, uh, Birmingham City, I live in the uh, the mayor implemented some pretty uh, strict policies like masks and and closures and things like that. But at state level, they did not, and our state has continued to set new records for COVID nineteen uh, every week, uh, and and it continues to get worse. Texas has just reversed uh, some of their reopening uh, policies. Uh, after realizing, I, I think one of their health experts said it was going to get apocalyptic which is not a word you hear a lot of health experts say. Uh, so you know it's, it's good, but they said that the levels of new cases were skyrocketing so quickly in Texas cities. Um, all of which is to say, we are, like, I think New York still kind of is in the thick of it. Uh, a lot of states are really still in the thick of it, whether they want to admit it or not. That said, I'm curious how you feel that your own approach to shopping has has changed over the long term like like what what are some things that maybe you wouldn't have gotten delivered or you wouldn't have ordered i know lisa you've obviously been very savvy to amazon since you've been covering it for a long time and you're you're always kind of the canary in the coal mine for me of like hey have you tried ordering this or have you tried getting this from amazon but <clears throat> i'm i'm just curious each of you how how do you feel that your shopping habits have changed because of the quarantine and I mean, long term, obviously, not just like what it's been like the last few months. Well, I'm kind of. Well, I like to always say that quarantine um, brings out true colors, amplifies the good and the bad. Um, so, on one hand, on one extreme, you know, I've become very practical. Like, I ordered an oximeter and a thermometer. On the other hand, it's, you know, very um, comfort driven. Like, I order a funny book or a cookbook or, um, you know, so I, I think that that has definitely been 
eye-opening for my own spending habits. Um, I just checked my Amazon account and, you know, you still had like baby showers and birthday gifts to send. Um, but also getting like the bulk pack of fruit candy, you know, (laughs) what about you guys? Well, I tend to be a late adopter uh, in a lot of things, unsurprisingly. I don't know if you know me. Um, but I know through this pandemic, I have started ordering a lot of things that I never would have normally ordered online before, um, such as appliances and so forth. And I found that the process has been amazing, and that's probably something I will continue going forward. But I still, I still feel you know, hesitant to buy produce, let's say. I still like to go to the grocery store and buy produce even through the pandemic. So I'm sort of curious, you know, as to other people's behaviors as well coming out of this. I've got to imagine that a lot of people are going to embrace online a lot, a lot more, though some folks in conversations I've had with with various folks in the retail industry, there is a little bit of curiosity around when we finally do get some treatment in place or we get a vaccine in place, will this be a case of where there will be so much nostalgia and pent-up desire because people have been denied the ability to, to go shopping as much as they would have liked to, to physical stores, whether we might just see a, a huge rebound in, in physical store shopping after this. So it's going to be really interesting. Um, yeah, well, and for me, I, uh, I've long gotten my groceries through Amazon Fresh because I have a seven-year-old son. He's kind of a maniac. The closest grocery store is like three avenues away, and there's no way I'm schlepping there with him and going around the grocery store and carrying it all back. Um, but uh, as you may recall, a few months ago, uh, I mean, groceries were hard to come by, and there were absolutely no Amazon Fresh slots to be had. So um, I've been leaning more on Instacart and um, grocery stores, kind of around here. That I like, I don't have a car that I wouldn't drive to, but I can get stuff delivered through Instacart now. And it is um, like the seafood options in particular. I got to say, are like there's many more options. I've been kind of on a on a shellfish spree lately, actually. Um, so I mean, that's probably the the one behavior that I will I will continue to 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 do after all is said and done. Um, yeah, I guess just lean a little less on on Amazon Fresh. I've I've gone deep into the uh, I mean I don't know I don't know how deep compared to some people but like the DTC rabbit hole right like I, I feel like this has been a a, a trend uh, that we've been covering is that especially early in the quarantine a lot of these services like we've been subscribers to. Um, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Is it called Who Gives a Crap? Right is the name of the. Um, it's a it's a company that that. They sell toiletries that are sustainable, like so they're not in plastic packaging and things like that, and they're made from recycled materials. Anyway, we've been using those for quite a while. They like they got sold out immediately, like when the quarantine kicked in and everyone was googling like mail order toilet paper. Um, And uh, but I think we're using Grove for a lot of our cleaning supplies. Um, My my wife handles a lot of this stuff, but I mean, honestly, we've all. It's stuff that we would have just gotten at the grocery store, but we try to be much more tactical with our grocery shopping. Um, and you just want to go into Richard's point. Like, I'm obsessed. I, I, I refuse to use grocery delivery services for produce because I'm such a, a straight-up maniacal cook. Like, and I... I I am that like every every like restaurant documentary about some obsessive chef going around 
like in the, the fish market or whatever, like sniffing everything. And, um, and that, that's how I am with everything. Uh, I'm also though, uh, kind of maybe, maybe in the opposite regard, I guess, is our farmer's market, which I am addicted to here. I live in a state with a lot of produce and, uh, the farmer's market obviously closed. Um, but, and it took them, I mean, it took months to get it figured out before they found a solution. But the, the current setup is that you order uh, changing inventory from the local farms directly. Uh, and then you pull up to the to where the farmer's market would have been. And you pull up in your car and they just throw the box in your trunk and you drive off. And so you just go booth to booth and basically like pick up whatever you pre-ordered. And I have to admit, like, even as much as I love going to the farmer's market, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, a, like the ability to just pull up, have a bunch of local produce get thrown in the back of your car and drive away without having to de- like deal with credit cards, deal with anything. Uh, I miss the walking around, but I'm like, if that keeps up in, in some regard, I have to, I have to think that it's actually better for the farms, right? Because instead of just bringing every single food product they've produced and hoping that they sell it, they're bringing the exact quantity that they know they've already sold. There's no sales on site. Uh, so for them, it's probably like the the wastage is probably a lot lower. But those are those have been my my big changes. Yeah, I mean, like in New York, you know, they opened the kept the farmers market open for a while, but that's like for me, that's the joy of you know, that was my only live interaction that I was having. <laughs> so I was glad that they were open throughout um, this whole time. Um, and same thing um, right now I'm in Seattle and, you know, all the farmers markets are kind of back up and running and you just go in a little bit at a time. You wait in line and um, and then you put your your square, your card in the square. Um, so we'll see how, you know, if the behavior starts to swing back. Um, I know my next purchase will probably be a nostalgic one for roller skates and maybe on Amazon. We shall see. <laughs> but I do want to thank uh, Lisa Lacey, our senior reporter, and Richard Collings, our retail reporter, for joining us to talk about all things shopping and brick and mortar or RIP brick and mortar. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, uh, I have one request before we uh, before we let Lisa off the hook. Lisa, can I hit you with some breaking news? Oh, sure. Guess what story is currently going viral on adweek.com as we record this? Is it the one about TikTok users abandoning their cards on Trump's <laughs> online store? It is. It is. So... So um, I just wanted to quickly because I mean it is literally like I just I just suddenly saw my phone blow up with all these messages of people being like whoa this story is really going nuts good job Lisa <laughs> so I looked over and sure enough it is it is blowing up our website right now um, because I believe we were the first uh, site to cover this um, but Lisa tell us so this follows up I'll give the quick context that as many probably heard uh, TikTok users really kind of coordinated to try to ruin uh, President Trump's rally in Tulsa by booking seats uh, in advance and then, of course, not showing. Uh, the campaign has denied that this was a really effective thing, and they've blamed protesters for scaring off attendees, blah, blah, blah. But the TikTok users really got a lot of attention, uh, including, I believe, from The New York Times uh, for this tactic of kind of uh, and they've done it in a few other ways, but tell, Lisa, so tell us what they're doing this time with the Donald Trump merch store. Um, well, this time around, I mean, it is really a rather savvy digital marketing move if you think about it. Um, but they're trying to get users to go uh, to Trump's online store, fill their carts with stuff, and then abandon them. And in theory, what happens then is that 
because a consumer almost made a purchase but didn't, that tells the Trump brand uh, that this is a person who just needs some gentle nudging and they should therefore spend some of their advertising dollars to retarget to that person. And so, you know, because these users had no intention of buying in the first place, that would drain um, some of the digital advertising digital advertising budget uh, for no reason. Um, it also, in theory, could kind of mess up their audience data. Like if they can't tell who was a legit customer versus who was somebody who was just doing this to abandon the cards to mess with the Trump administration, um, then all of a sudden their, their data is useless. But um, because some of the cards that TikTok users have built are so huge on the order of, you know, a million dollars, $350 million, that kind of a thing. Um, I mean, I, I think from what the, the digital marketers I talked to this morning said, it's probably going to be pretty easy for them to um, identify which orders are potentially fraudulent and then just um, kind of disregard them. So uh, it sounds like uh, they, they may not thwart Trump this time, uh, but it was a it was a, what's the right word? I'm trying to think of a, an unbiased way to say, to describe the attempt, uh, the bold attempt. I, I, you know, I, I am like, it, it, do you remember a few years ago when everyone was scared of anonymous? Like, like this may be a solid decade ago now where like there was literally, and I remember there were even jokes and, and real headlines about like, what are the odds that anonymous will hack you and that they will come after you? And of course, in the end, in the long run, anonymous has not been, uh, a really huge, you know, I think public concern. Um, but I love this, like, kind of, uh, yeah, now, now I'm having trouble thinking of the right word, like prankster, let like this prankstery vibe of the TikTok crowd who are Gen Z, they're quite young. And, um, and they, they're, they're so savvy about this stuff, about how they'll, they'll create these videos and they'll wait until they've been shared really broadly. And then they'll delete the video so that there is no track record of this thing so that no one can go back. There's no search. You can't search for any of these terms. Lisa had to piece this together just based on the clips that we found where people were saying this. And I'm sure several of those clips have probably already been deleted uh, from the original account. Sometimes they set it to where you can't download the videos, uh, like some of the ones that Lisa and I were passing back and forth, um, you know, to kind of cover their tracks. And it's, it's, you know, it's not like they're disrupting democracy. Um, I think if, no matter which candidate, the, this kind of... And of course, uh, w warfare always escalates in both directions, right? <laughs> so it's like one side learns a trick, the other side is going to learn the trick. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what the TikTok crowd, like how they continue to really kind of mess with these digital infrastructures uh, that so many campaigns have really relied on. Oh, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, thank you for letting me hit that with you. Congratulations on yet another uh, me viral mega hit. Uh, Lisa Lacey's been absolutely crushing it. So uh, definitely I cannot say enough about Lisa's coverage of Amazon and beyond. Um, on uh, on Definitely check out Adweek.com and uh, follow her coverage, Richard Collings, and his uh, the not bankruptcy tracker, the retail tracker, on Adweek, um, and uh, which is constantly updated, is a tireless uh, labor of, of love. Uh, well, I don't know about love, but a labor. And uh, really appreciate all the effort both of you put into it. So thank you, as as, as Kobe was saying, sorry to uh, delay your exit uh, from the podcast, but thank you both for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. And speaking of social media, after the break, uh, social media for social good, we'll be rehearing from Lovey Ayaji, an author and social advocate 
um, who can talk about how the Share the Mic Now campaign uh, got running and um, has still has legs now and what she's asking brands to do to join the movement. We'll be right back. Are you an Adweek Pro member? If so, we hope you've been enjoying unlimited access to Adweek content, including special reports on the future of marketing's hottest categories. If you're not an Adweek Pro member, now's the perfect time to join. We've got a ton of amazing member-only events and resources on the way, and you won't want to miss them. Your employer might even be interested in covering the cost of your membership. Visit adweek.com offer to find our current special offer for new Adweek Pro members. That's adweek.com offer. Today, we are joined by Lavia Jai Jones uh, from Chicago, Illinois, uh, where she is writing her second book and also behind the movement uh, campaign called Share the Mic Now. Hi, Lovey. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us during this very busy and hectic time. Um, I remember being just floored by the amount of people I saw participating in the Share the Mic Now campaign. So can you tell me a little bit about how you and a few collaborators and friends thought of the idea and what it came to be? Yes. So Share the Mic Now came to be from conversations born out of relationships. Um, I called Bozeman St. John and we were both like, we want to do something and really make sure that voices that are typically not heard are placed in the forefront. So we were like, what if we actually get prominent white women to hand over their Instagram accounts for a day to black women who have incredible voices? So we called Glennon Doyle instantly. We were like, Glennon, we have this idea. And Glennon was like, yes, 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 let's do it. And she's like, I already have 20 people in my head right now that I want to ask. So we were like, okay, we will get the white women that we can have. And then we will get the black women and let's do this. And we got that idea June 2nd and we did share the mic now on June 10th. What happened was we literally had 54, we ended up having 54 women, um, white women who have large Instagram platforms give their passwords over to black women Um, who a lot of them, they've never met. They didn't even know who they were. They trusted us to match them with somebody amazing. And on June 10th, we did share the mic now, and it was incredible. We had um, Black women like Rachel Cargill, Tarana Burke, Yaba Blay, Alencia Johnson, um, Elaine Walteroth, uh, Yvette Noel Shore. They took over the accounts of people like Esther Perel. Um, I took over Sophia Bush's account. Um, it was just an incredible show of sisterhood in the way of people stepping back, trusting somebody else to take their mic and just telling their stories. We really wanted to share the mic now to give black women a chance to amplify their, their, um, the stories, their voices, their work. We wanted people to listen because we ended up getting 300 million followers combined of the white women we had. We had Ellen, we had, you know, um, we had Sandra Clinton, we had uh, Elizabeth Warren. So it was just such an incredible day of showing of sisterhood. Yeah, I love that. And um, I saw that you were uh, also doing a live with Sophia Bush and folks like Julia Roberts were involved. Bozoma took over Courtney uh, Kardashians. And what I thought was genius and I didn't expect was um, you know, those accounts interacting with each other 
yeah. um, in the end. So it turned out to be kind of a double amplification day. What were some of the conversations that were being had, not just the day after, but during that day, um, you know, I think you had everything from just lighthearted conversations, but also, you know, some deeper ones, right? Yeah, it was really important for us to make sure that this wasn't just a, I'm handing over my account, I'm going to walk away. The white women who participated were expected to do labor of engaging with their audience, moderating their comments if it got crazy, and really taking the part and, and taking this seriously. We started the action by having everybody actually talk about Breonna Taylor on her birthday. Mm-hmm. Because we wanted to start and end it with something concrete and tangible because while we have people's attention, what were we gonna do with it? So the conversations in between, because we started with the happy birthday Brianna, like to really talk about how her killers were still out and free. We ended it with asking people to take the action of calling Louisville's prosecutors to make sure that something happens with um, her. We wanted justice for Brianna. But in between, the conversations were allowed to be whatever they could be, right? So everybody's platform, people talked about different things. Some people talked about, you know, how racism affects finances and homeownership. Tiffany, the budgetista, that was what she talked about um, on Ashton Harris's account. Um, I talked about how it's important for us to speak truth to power no matter where we are in whatever spaces that we're in on Sophia Bush's platform. Um, Yaba Blay was on Abby Wambach's platform. And Toronto Burke was on Glennon Doyle's platform. Each conversation was organic to what the Black women wanted to speak on that day. And that was also important because when we talk about racism and injustice and just systems that are not fair, the systems of oppression, there isn't just one issue. It's all multilayered. Right. So we wanted everybody's stories to basically form a big web of the layers that we have to deal with. You know, some people, Malik Teal took over Cheryl Strade's account and talked about microaggressions and how hard it is for black women in the workplace. And I loved how different every conversation was. I loved how different every perspective was. Because even within black women, there's diversity in thought. There's diversity in right. there's diversity in what we wake up and think about every single day. And this action really showed it. And people were going from account to account using the hashtag share the mic now to see like what somebody else was talking about. And I know people, even after the fact, people were like, I'm going to be spending the next couple of days catching up on all the conversations because they were so broad. They were so deep. You couldn't take it all in in one day. Yeah. And what do you, what does that have to say about, um, you know, maybe the stereotypes among uh, just different diversity groups, right? It, it really has to show that, you know, nobody is a monolith. No one group is a monolith. Yeah. And um, I guess, you know, what what was the true purpose behind Share the Mic Now? That What was the real point that maybe some people might not understand yet uh, about trying to put this, you know, out there? Well, one thing is we really wanted to center the voices of Black women. Throughout our whole action, we were very intentional about making sure that Black women were mentioned first. We wanted to make sure that you have to make it a point to center Black women because otherwise we are quickly lost in the sauce. Like we're quickly put to the side and relegated and our stories are quickly deprioritized. What we wanted people to really take out of this was that 
Black women's voices are strong, they're powerful, and they deserve space, right? People need to give us space. And I, and a lot of times, Black women, we will take space when we're not given. Um, mm-hmm. So this was a celebration of our voices. This was not saying, like, we have to take space. We, we are now being given space, which we've earned. Um, and to your point, we are not a monolith. That's a really important piece because our last action for the black women on the platforms of the black of the white women that they took over was a drop the mic, which was to, for them to put a call to action, something that they wanted this audience to move and, and walk away doing. The reason why we didn't do a unified call to action is, again, there is no one thing that we can ask people to do that is going to solve the system of oppression. There's no one solution to any problem. So now people have at least 50. You know, if you go on all the different accounts of the women who participated and you can go to the drop the mic post because every, we left everybody with one um, platform, this one graphic that said drop the mic, there's literally 50 different things you can now say you can do, right? So maybe it is to donate. Maybe it is to volunteer. Maybe it is to speak your truth. Maybe it is to reflect on certain questions. All of that is important. All of that is what's going to push us closer to a world that feels more equitable for black and brown people, for people who are marginalized. Right. And there are so many different uh, lanes of action that you could drive in to help foster and facilitate that change. Um, I'm curious, you know, uh, I know that you saw so much interaction and so much engagement. Um, Did some of the followers on some of the white celebrity accounts transfer over to to the black voices that we, we saw participate absolutely on average okay. people end up getting um seven to ten thousand more followers that day um wonderful and the point wasn't even necessarily for us to all get more followers the point was for a moment in time to be in front of people who might not be hearing this perspective right you know a right. lot of times people just we live in our own little bubbles so we hear the same thing over and over again. But what happens when people are now allowed to hear something different? But yeah, people did absolutely follow Black women on certain, on their accounts. And I mean, for us, we are just, we are heartened by the response to Share the Mic Now because what we wanted was for people to feel compelled to act, to do something different, to um, know that they have more power than they thought. And for honestly, for white people to feel and to know that you can be doing more and you can start today, not tomorrow, today. And there are different things you can, it doesn't all have to be major acts, right? It doesn't have to be you donating $30,000 or, you know, volunteering eight hours a day. I think change comes into small actions that we do consistently across time. And if more people feel compelled to do it, we'd be doing something good. And I think on that day, we were able to just anecdotally have people tell us that how somebody's content made them see something different or make them feel like they should move. And in terms of the number impact, Share the Mic Now had 17 billion impressions, which blew our mind. so amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I love that you mentioned small actions 
matter. Um, not only does it reflect your values if you're acting out from them, um, but you know, it makes it more manageable for you know a problem and a challenge that is so huge. Um, I want to take a page out of um, your first book. Uh, I'm judging you, and you know, you mentioned back in 2016, you know, life doesn't usually come with a manual, and then you went on to say. Humans are flawed beings. Some flaws are merely wrinkles. Some are cracks, and some are the Grand Canyon. I, if, I think for me, where I'm from, where I'm sitting, you know, we saw a lot of um, true colors from the Grand Canyon <laughs> coming through. Um, but the Share the Mic campaign also um, showed a lot of of hope. And are you feeling that as well? This positivity from you know, the admittance that, you know, we're all flawed and this is going to take some time and we're going to make some mistakes, but hey, people will actually listen and try to do something, including the the stars. Yeah, I I was emboldened and heartened by it because it showed what happens when we trust each other, first of all. And then second of all, when we move in one accord, we can make really powerful things happen. I, especially right now, think it's, really, it's important for us to find moments of joy and beacons of hope to hold on to because it feels like there's so much dark darkness in the world. We always hear bad news. And right now I'm like, any piece of great news or anything that feels positive that I can hold on to, I do. Because we need it in the moments when it feels too dark. This is our light. And that is, share the mic now is something that has brought me so much light. Like, you know, Stacey Bandit of Alison Olivia ended up one of our organizers and just seeing how women said yes to us without question is powerful. And it makes me deeply hopeful that we can work together for the greater good and we can get on elevated ground. Yes, I love the the partnership that snowballed so quickly there. What would you say to our audience of marketers and advertisers? What can we learn from this kind of partnership? And then how can you know other companies and leaders um, really get involved and support these kinds of initiatives that truly foster dialogue? Um, I think it's really important to always lead with humanity. No matter what you're doing, lead with humanity. This campaign, there were many ways where it could have gone wrong. Share the mic now. There were many opportunities for it to fail, but we asked uh, these 108 women, because we had 108 women as part of this action, 54 pairs. We asked them to trust us. We asked them, we said, listen, we're doing this thing. We don't know how it's going to go, but we're trying to lead with good intentions, good heart. Come with us on this journey. We're building this canoe as 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 we're rowing it. And they all said yes. I think that power of openness made this really, really powerful. What you saw in terms of the pairs who talked to each other, they actually weren't required to do live. It was, they were so deeply impacted by it that they were like, you know what, we're all going to get on live with our partners because we feel connected to them now. Lead with the humanity, lead with pure intentions, and honestly, do not be afraid to make strong statements. Our big intention here is when the world listens to women, it listens to white women. Black women have been yelling and screaming for centuries, but we don't get heard. And for a second there, we were like, ah, is it too strong of a statement? No, but it's the truth. I think the power of this action of Share the Mic Now was us taking risks, but we took risks that felt honorable. We wanted to honor black women and we did it. And we were able to come together 
and make it happen in 10 days. So that's the campaign. We really give credit to the women who said yes. We give credit to their heart, their openness, and for them to trust us. So for marketers, we actually encourage people to do share the mic now in their own spaces where people are actively giving over their accounts to somebody who would typically not have that access. Um, We are encouraging people to right now figure out what they can do. And this is something that they can do. Hand over your account to somebody who does not have as many followers as you. Hand over your account to, if you're a business leader, hand it over to an entrepreneur who's up and coming. Um, If you are a white man, hand it over to a black man. It can be done in many different spaces and we've seen it be done. It's been done, like for the last two weeks on Instagram, we've been seeing all the different share the mic now actions and we are encouraged by it. So we are actually going to be giving out uh, the toolkit where people can do this in their own spaces with the right intention and they can see how we executed ours because we want to make sure that this doesn't just stop with us. This mm-hmm. can be a global movement of people who are typically voiceless or not given space, having voice now. Yeah, I love that. Um, it's continuing and organically evolving. Um, you already took my last question of what's next for the Share the Mic Now campaign. Um, what's what's next for you as our last uh, question? Um, what, yeah. What's kind of on your mind as things continue to, to shape up? Well, for Share the Mic Now, we are going to be announcing our next activation soon. Um, and then just, you know, sharing on everybody who's sharing the mic now in their own spaces. And for me, I am working on book two called the Fear Fighter Manual. It'll be dropping Q1 of uh, 2021. And I have an app in the app store called Love Nation, L-U-V-V-N-A-T-I-O-N. But one thing that I want to say as I leave is I think if there's anything people should take is that you can create something powerful in your own space. I just think in the room that you're in. I think it's really important for us to feel compelled to be the gatekeepers of truth. So I actually have a, a guide. I create a free guide to truth telling called Be the Domino that people can download at be the domino.com. It is really important right now and beyond this moment that we commit ourselves to speaking truth, especially when they're difficult, because that is when we are going to make sure that the rooms that we're in are being as best as they could be. Yes. Yes. Um, and also thank you for encouraging all of us to take a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit and make it our own as we uh, continue to, you know, bolster ourselves in our communities. Love you, Jaya Jones. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we look forward to, to keeping up with everything that you're working on. Thank you. Big thanks to Co for sharing that conversation, and uh, definitely you know check out uh, Adweek on on LinkedIn and Facebook if you want to catch our live streams and a lot of our video conversations. All right, this week's episode uh, was produced by Co M and edited by Lane McGibney. Our theme music is by Home. If you have not already, please uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your your podcasts. Uh, those reviews, well, they mean a lot to us, but they also help new listeners discover the show. You can drop us a, a note anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. Uh, for Adweek, I'm David Griner with CoM, and we will be back next week. 